you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is a text that is one of the clearest, most foundational evangelical texts uh, in the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, I pray that your spirit would do the work that it promises to do to soften hearts, to open eyes, to give understanding to spiritual truths. And Father, as we look at grace that is immeasurable, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts understand that we might respond accordingly. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what are we to do? You woke up this morning, another day. What's the purpose of your existence? What are you supposed to do? What work are you supposed to do? Is, is there meaning to your existence and to my existence? As Christians, we know there is. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us two things to do in light of the grace of God. In a sense, Ephesians 2 is like a small microcosm of what Paul says in Romans in the first 11 chapters. Here's what he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's the first thing. Your body is to be a living sacrifice. holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Secondly, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your bodies to God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul has been praying that we understand, that we know. 
Last week at the end of chapter 1, Paul is praying, and he's praying for three things that we remember. He's praying that we remember the hope of our calling. When God called you into existence spiritually, the moment you trusted Christ, you were called to a hope that can never be extinguished. It's an eternal hope. Every spiritual blessing is yours and mine in Christ. He calls our minds to the past when, when we came into faith. And then he takes us all the way to the end, to our inheritance. He calls us to know the hope or, or the glory of our inheritance, which is in the future, when we get to see the full extent of our salvation in Christ, even being seated with Christ on the throne in, at God's right hand in heaven. And then the third thing he wanted them to know, I think continues into this text, and that is the greatness of his power. Look at verse 19, Ephesians 1 verse 19. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. That's in the present tense. He wants us to remember our calling, our future, but right now he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you in Christ Jesus, towards you. See, when you get up in the morning and it's like, what do I do? If you don't know about your past and you don't know about your future and you don't know about the present power, then you'll likely forget who you are. And Paul's praying that we don't. And then he begins to display his power. Look at what he says. It's the power, in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So the same power that took Jesus, who died under the full wrath of God for our sins, and raised him up, gave him a new spiritual body, and then ascended to the place that no one can go. Surely no man can go. But by God's power, Christ, the man for us, is seated at the right hand of God. So that same power is the power that's towards us. What kind of power is this? Verse 21, far above all rule, all authority, power, and dominion. This is in Ephesus. They believe in the Greek gods, in their powers. And Paul's saying, Christ is far above any rule or power or so-called God or authority above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So this authority isn't just a right hand, God's right hand. It isn't just towards us. It's the head of the church. It's the head of the church. This, this gathering might look pretty insignificant in the eyes of the world, but this world has no idea the authority of our head of this body and every other body that is trusting in Christ. It's great power. So then as we come to chapter 2, he's still demonstrating God's power towards us. 
You know, we get to a new chapter and we tend to think it's a different thought, but right here it's not. He's continuing on. So here's how he puts it on display. If you see in your notes, the charge of this message is to consider the resurrection power of God towards you in your salvation and then work. You do see God's power towards you in your salvation, and then you are to get to work, and I am to get to work. In order to do that, I not only need to know, I need to believe these things. Point one, do you believe you're as dead as God says you were? All right, let's look at it. Verse one, and you. I think you is referring to, to Gentiles in Ephesus. He's going to talk about you, and then he's going to talk about us. All right? But right now he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What do you mean they're dead? They're alive. In this world, there can be talented people. Talented people that are so intellectual, so rich, so eloquent, so vivacious with life flowing out of them. And yet those very people can be dead in the only area that really matters in this world. Their soul can be dead. The only way you can be alive is to be connected to life. Jesus Christ is the way, is the life. But he's speaking to believers who were at one time dead separated from the life source because sin always separates. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Someone who's separated from God is spiritually dead. And it's because of their sins. The way... Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5, 5. He's speaking of uh, widows and and those who are truly widows and and godly widows. And he he wants them to be cared for. But what he says is, uh, and he wants to instruct them, he says, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Uh, uh, that, that, that's who truly is a widow. And then it says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So Paul says there's two types of widows. There's widows that are alive and have hope in God. And then there's widows that are described as self-indulgent. The very root of what sin is is selfishness. We're enthroned on the throne and therefore separated from God. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to take God's place. And so sin creates a separation from the life source and therefore we're Adam and Eve died spiritually just like God said they would if they ate of the tree. And then he says, 
you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, whenever I heard those, I just thought it was two words that say the exact same thing, but it's actually kind of helpful understanding trespasses and sins. So trespass is peripatoma in the Greek, and it involves taking a false step or crossing a known boundary line. To trespass is to cross a line that you know you're not supposed to cross. You know, a, a bow hunter can be tempted with this. Man, if I could only be in that tree over there. But I know I don't have permission over there. So to go sit over there would be to take a known step, a, a known trespass. And then the other word, our trespasses and sins, is harmatia, uh, which has the idea of missing the mark. One is doing what you know you shouldn't do, and the other one is failing to do what you are supposed to do. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're created to glorify God, and we have all fallen short of it. So we can sin in our known wrong actions, and we can sin by failing to be what God has called us to be. So he's saying you're dead because of the full encompassing nature of our rebellion and sin. And then it says, in which you once walked. This word, peripateo, means uh, walking around. You, you once walked around. It was the, your way of life. He's speaking to believers, and he says, you used to just live a way of life of sin. You just walked around in it. Following the course of this world. That word course is the word eon. Following the age of this world. Here's how Paul says in Galatians 1.3. Listen how he starts out this later, letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave, them, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, that present evil eon, according to the will of our God and Father. So he's saying you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked in this present evil age. Christ was sent to deliver people that are totally enslaved in this evil age, the course of this world. World here isn't talking about all-encompassing the whole world. It's talking about the world system, this satanic system that's in place, the present evil age. The, there is a system. There is a unity in everyone who is outside of God. Man is united against God, even though it takes different forms. And Paul's trying to remind them, remember, of Christ's power towards us, God's power towards us. And he says, remember what you were? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world this world system, this world system that dehumanizes people, teaches people they're like animals whose leaders lead as though they will not give an account to God. The world system has leaders that are autonomous to themselves. They don't fear God with how they treat who's ever in their care. It's an oppressive system. It's a materialistic system. The course of this world worships the creature rather than the creator. 
before you saw Christ, before you knew Christ, you just worshiped the stuff he made. Whether it's yourself, whether it's your girlfriend, whether it's your children, whether it's your job, rather than seeing so many of those things that are good gifts, we worship them. They become our life. Our whole life hinges upon them. Relativism is a part of this system. There are no moral absolutes. There's no one outside of us that can tell us what to do. We're living in the midst of a culture, of a present evil age that likes to imagine they're living in a world without God. MacArthur says this. He says, what we often call the spirit of the times reflects the wider course of this world, a course in which men are in basic agreement about what is right and wrong, valuable and worthless, important and unimportant. Sinful men have many different ideas and standards, but they are in total agreement that the network of things in this world is more important than the divine perspective of God. In this most basic world outlook, they are of one mind. They are resolute to work to fulfill the goals and value system, uh, or the goals and values of their system, though it defies God and always self-destructs. And then he would summarize it in three elements. He says... uh, that this world system uh, that's characterized in our world is characterized in humanism, materialism, and illicit sex. If you want to know what this world is, humanism, man is God. Man is the one to receive glory. Man is the one who decides moral standards. Materialism, worshiping the creature, rather than the creator, and then illicit sex, taking what God has given as a good gift and perverting it. And so we read that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then he says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So they were following a prince of the power. So this world system has a power behind it. And there's a prince that is above that power, and that prince is Satan himself. We often, in the modern age, make too light of the spiritual warfare that we are in. Here, MacArthur says, during the present age, he and his demon hosts dominate, pressure, and control every person who is unsaved. He is the personification of spiritual death because he is the personification of rebellion against God and so is the system he designed. He's the prince of the power of the air. I think the air is saying in heavenly places, in the spiritual world that we cannot see. In fact, in chapter 6 of this letter, Ephesians 6, 12, here's how he says it. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In heavenly places. I think that's the air. He's the prince of the power of the air. I'll never forget watching the end of a certain movie that 
there's this good and evil battle, and the whole sky is like darkness and lightning, and, and you just got this realm of evil, and there's good was about to face off against it. And I remember in the emotion of the movie, I'm thinking, I wish life was this exciting. And then it dawned on me, what am I thinking? This is actually what the Bible describes. You used to be dead. You were controlled by the evil ruler of this present darkness and his demons that are in heavenly places. Christian, do you know your battle? Do you know what you were saved from? In John 8, Jesus told the Pharisees that their father was the devil. John 8, 38, he says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would have loved me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Christian, you were dead following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And then it says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now look at this text. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Satan is prince of the power in heavenly places, the demonic powers, the spirit. Now, in English, you might think, well, that's the devil. But the spirit is in the genitive form, the, the, the grammatical form of possession, which means Satan not only possesses power over the air, but he possesses a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It can't be himself. It's a spiritual force. It's like a spiritual mood of rebellion that is now presently at work in the sons of disobedience, the sons of rebellion. Do you have any idea how much trouble you were in? Do you have any idea how separated you were from God? You weren't just separated from God in the neutral, but you were marching to the drumbeat of Satan himself, falling to his lies. John Stott says, since Scripture identifies the devil not only as the source of temptations to sin, but also a lion and a murderer, we may safely trace all evil, error, and violence back to him in the end. Here's what he's saying. He's saying when it says uh, that we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, where it says at work, that's energo. That's the same power 
that raised Jesus from the dead, that's the, th- this is the same idea. That the devil also has power through a spirit that's working and uh, evil attitude that comes with the temptation. So you have Christ working and you have the devil working that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's saying Satan isn't just merely a tempter saying, hey, you should do this and now it's your choice. But he actually comes with spiritual power too. Are you culpable for your sin? Yes. Is Satan culpable for your sin also? Yes. You see, when you self-destruct and die, I shouldn't say you, when an unbeliever self-destructs and dies, I think the Bible describes Satan as a lion that devoured that person, as a murderer that murdered that person. And so we see that what we were was terribly enslaved, terribly in, in, were not only spiritually dead, but we were totally influenced by Satan and his world system and the spirit that he works in non-believers' lives. But it says we were sons of disobedience. We're accountable. We were rebels. Literally, the NEB translation, the Net Bible, it says, it calls us God's rebel subjects. That's what we were. What's your identity? I hate God. I am fighting against God. I am enthroning myself. That's what I was. That's what I was before. And then it says in verse 3, among whom we all. So now he's transitioned the pronouns. He, he's not saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now he's saying we all are among whom we all once lived. Now he's saying us Jews as well. This is what he does in Romans 1, right? The Gentiles are condemned in sin. The Jews are condemned in sin. Mankind is condemned in sin. That's what he's doing here. And so he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So it's important when you read that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh that you don't just see our body as as evil, because it's not. God made our body good. And so when he's talking about the passions of our flesh, what he's talking about is the sinful, selfish, God-rebelling, idolatrous uh, uh, worship of good things God's given us. Hunger for food is good. Gluttony is a sin. Sleep is good. Slothfulness is a sin. Sex inside marriage is good, and sex outside of marriage is sin. And so we get the idea that we all used to be controlled and enslaved by our passions. Your greatest urge controls your next act. He says, we all once lived that way. We were enslaved not only to this world, not only to the devil, but our own passions we had no control over. Passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. You know, the the text we started with in Romans 12. You know, we're told what to do with our bodies We're told what we're to do with our mind. And here Paul describes that our passions were out of control 
both with our bodies and with our thinking. And so we can sin with our thoughts and we can sin with our bodies. You know, passions of the mind, intellectual pride, false ambition, rejection of known truth, malicious, vengeful thoughts, and you could go on and on and on. Out of control thinking, drunkenness of thinking, sinful worry. All these uh, are how Paul describes how we are sl- in, used to be enslaved. And then he says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Literally, <laughs> who is uh, like who is that over there? Who is that over there? From God's perspective, that is the subject of my wrath because of their rebellion. That's what we were. If you say, what's the most important part of life? Well, it's our relation to God. If the Bible says in the beginning, God, and then we forget about God, and and, and we quit worrying about what God says, we rebel at the most fundamental level, right? And so we were by nature children of wrath. And then it says, like the rest of mankind, everyone is encompassed in this. You know, in John 3, 18, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In verse 36 of John 3, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life in the present. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In this room, there's people who have life. And in this room, there are people who right now, as we sit, are children of wrath. They're spiritually dead. They're deceived by the world system. They're deceived by the lies of Satan. And the ultimate proof of that is they've heard of Jesus Christ and they say, no, not interested. I want to worship God's stuff. I don't want the God who made the stuff. It's terrifying to think about. Some are connected to the life source and have spiritual life pumping through their veins and have forgotten they're alive. And there's others who are sitting here right now. If the Lord took them in a moment, in the present they have the wrath of God remaining on them because of their sin. But he's speaking to Christians. And so in verse 4, he says this. Now remember, why are we reading this? God, Paul's praying that we remember the power of God towards us. But God. <laughs> so we were dead. Course of this world, prince of the power of the air, passions of our flesh. So you sum up fallen man, sons of disobedience. What was the change? But God. But God. That song we sang. It's not what I don't do or what I don't do do. It's not the clothes I wear. I can't do anything to justify a single sin I've done. I can't work my way out of it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's in the aorist tense, in the past. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know, people define sin as unmerited favor. You get what you don't deserve. But this text says something more than that. This text says you weren't just neutral and you were given favor you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. This text says you were full-on rebel, son of disobedience, at the bottom 
of the pit, totally deceived in your mind, totally believing the lies of Satan, marching to the drumbeat of this world, and you loved it. Your flesh loved it. You took up every lie that Satan gave out. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead. Now listen to me. God does not ever save a good person. There is no good person except Jesus Christ. He does not save the good person. Because he says, even while you were dead, he made alive. Which means you contributed nothing to your new birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead rescued you from Satan's grasp, from the grasp of your own flesh, from the lies of this world. He made you alive. And it was according to his great mercy. And it was according to his love. And the reason why it's so important you get it through your head that you didn't become good enough to be saved because if you receive Jesus like that, you'll think that you can unearn your salvation. You see, as soon as you mess up, now you'll think it's gone because you thought you earned it in the first place. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up. Not, not only are we saved by grace, Not only did he make us alive, but in verse 6 it says he raised us up and seated, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Now this is power upon power. Not only does he give you spiritual life, if we just got to go to heaven, that would be good, wouldn't it? But we get to go sit with Jesus Christ on the throne. We get to become kings and queens with Christ on his throne. And our minds can't fathom it. I mean, you go to the Grand Canyon and your mind, you can say, man, God's powerful. That's amazing. That's amazing. You want to know what's more powerful? that God can take a scumbag like me who used to give two rips about him and was full-on deceived and opened my eyes to his goodness and start to bring spiritual life. Some of the selfishness in my heart starts to die. Well, that takes more power than power to create the universe. I can be a puke. Ask, ask Laura. Ask my kids. If God can raise us up, what is this power that is towards us in Christ Jesus? And then we're seated with him in the heavenly places, verse 7. This is going to blow your minds. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. His power is towards us. His immeasurable riches of grace and kindness is towards us. So that in the coming ages, this is the most we know about all eternity. Right here. You're not going to get more information than this. You're seated on the throne with Christ. And in the coming ages, from a human perspective, I don't even know how to say this because I know it's not, going to encompass it fully. The first day, riches of grace a thousand times more than I ever could have expected. Day one in heaven. And then you don't go to sleep in heaven, but if you did, when I was going to sleep, I'd probably think, I can't wait to do that day again. The next day, a thousand times more. Riches 
of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I mean, day two, I'm going to be saying, okay, enough of the riches and grace of kindness towards me. Let me do something for you. Let me earn something. And God says, I'm always the giver. I'm the giver. I'm the one that lavishes forever the riches of his grace and kindness on you forever. And you are a new creation. And you are made alive. And you are able to do what I created you to do, which is to glorify me. And so then in verse 8, If you've been around Christianity long, you've heard this verse, for by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved. That's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means the perfect tense is an event that took place in the past and has present implications right now. So by grace, you were saved back here and you are still saved here and now. It's still working. Through faith. Grace always comes through faith. Grace always comes through faith. Forgiving grace comes through faith. Transforming grace that will change your life always comes through faith. So the Christian that says, I believe Jesus can forgive me, but I don't believe he can help me quit looking at pornography. I say, why do you have faith in one area? And you don't believe Jesus when he says he's going to conform you in the image of Christ. Because when you start believing he's going to do what he said he would do, that's when transforming grace starts to come towards you with power. And not in your own strength, but with the strength of Christ, you begin to crush sins in your life. Growing up, I was always taught to believe in forgiving grace. No one ever helped me see that I need to believe every day, fight the fight of faith in the transforming grace. Because it's easy to know something, it's hard to believe it and, and, and trust in it. So he says, by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing. Now what is the this referring to? We know for, for, for sure from the text it grabs the faith. Most commentators think it grabs also the grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Paul's saying, right here, he's expecting them to say, yeah, but I believe. Yeah, but I believed." He says, even your faith. You know, when, he t- when Jesus told Lazarus, get up, he's dead for four days. He says, get up. Get up. Have you ever gone to the funeral and told the body to get up? Someone would say, he's dead. He can't get up. So in Jesus' command to get up, in order for Lazarus to obey it, he has to give the life to get up. And if you're spiritually dead, and now you're trusting in Christ, God, through his spirit, opened your eyes, and then you obeyed the command to believe because you see now. You see, all of it is a work of God. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift, your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God saves us in a way that there can be no boasters. If my faith starts with me, I can stand here and say, the most important thing in the world you need to do is believe God. I believe God You lost people over here, don't. I'm better than you. But if my faith is a gift of God, if God by his grace opened my eyes through the preaching of the gospel or reading the Bible or going to VBS, whatever it would be, Billy Graham crusade, if God's the one that had to pulse life into me in order for me to believe, then when I look at the unbelieving world, I just say, Lord, give me a heart for them. Let me help them know the hope they have. They're stumbling around in darkness. They don't know the purpose of their life. They need hope. 
They need to know there's hope. They need to know there's an inheritance. They need to know there's present power to help change them. And then look at what he says, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. You are his artwork. You're his artwork. You're his building. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You didn't create yourself. You didn't give yourself spiritual life. God's power pulsed towards you so that just as Christ was dead and raised, just as so you were dead and were brought to spiritual life. You are his workmanship. Now, I love this. Created in Christ Jesus for good works in which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How sovereign is God? God chose you before the foundation of the earth in chapter 1. Right? Not only did he choose you before the foundation of the earth, that you would be holy and blameless before him, that you would be adopted into his family. He also ordained the good works you would do after he brought you from death to life. So the Christian that says, well, I'm already saved. I'm not worried about living for God. That doesn't even make sense. It'd be like a man that couldn't, couldn't walk and Jesus heals him, gives him new legs, and then he sits in a wheelchair. Walk! Work, Christian. You've been brought from death to life. Glorify God with your life. The purpose for your life is beyond what our minds can imagine. And as we continue on in Ephesians, we're going we're, we're gonna to remember we're in a spiritual battle. We're going to be told in chapter 6 to put on the full armor of God. We have to uh, fight with faith in God's word as Satan delivers lies to us to capture us. 